All right, have you found John chapter 6? Let's look at verses 1 through 15 together. Here's the word of God. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then... And seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Pray with me, friends. God, it's a joy to open your word today. I pray that you will... Just fill us with gospel, fill us with hope, fill us with life, fill us with hearts that would follow you. We pray it all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. You all can be seated. Man, what a good day. Sometimes people miss the point. Is that true? Wives, you ever had your husband miss the point? No. No. It sounded like a man said that. That was weird. (laughs) By the way, something you learn about this room, uh, you all need to sing louder in this room than when we were at the other place. So just do that. And if you want to amen louder, that's okay too. You got to do it louder so we know from up here. But amen. Amen. Thank you. There's Russ. Amen. So I once heard a story about a husband and wife. They were in their 60s. They've been married 40 some odd years. And the wife one day ran across a picture of herself and her husband. And this was way back when they were teenagers. And the picture showed a much younger, much slimmer, no gray hair version of the couple. They were smiling, holding hands. They were getting ready to head off to their senior prom. Wouldn't that be sweet? They were, they were smiling, they were holding hands, they were standing next to the young man's car, just about to take off. And the wife decided that she would show that picture to her husband because she knew this picture would remind her husband of all the fond memories they shared. It would remind him of how in love they were as high school sweethearts. So one morning... She slid that photo across the kitchen table at breakfast. The wife just knew that photo would stir 
an emotional reaction in her husband, and it did. The husband's gaze fell upon the photo, his breath caught in his throat. His eyes grew a bit misty. Tenderly, he picked up the precious photograph and got a closer look. Then turning to his wife of over 40 years, the husband could barely speak. Oh my goodness, he exclaimed with tears in his eyes. It's my old Plymouth. (laughs) The wife hoped that the picture would make the husband think of her. And unfortunately, the husband's attention was on the old car that he used to own. In summary, he missed the point. As we continue to follow John's telling of the gospel according to Jesus, or the gospel of Jesus according to John, you know what I meant, Kelly, don't laugh at me. We want to be careful not to miss the point, don't we? What we're going to read today, the crowd misses the point. So we're going to strive with the help of God's Holy Spirit to do a better job. Let's strive to see and believe in the Lord Jesus. In the passage for today, we're going to find four points, and they're not going to be on any screen anywhere. You just write them down. Point number one, seek Jesus for Jesus. Seek Jesus for Jesus. Look at verses one to four. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, the phrase after this, all it tells you is that what we're reading here in chapter 6 occurs sometime after what we saw in chapter 5. My guess is this is about 10 months after what we saw in chapter 5. And we see here Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee. And you know John's writing to Gentiles because he points out to them that's the Sea of Tiberias in case you guys don't know it by the original name. And this sea, it's a pretty large lake. It's like a, it's like a big inland lake. It's kind of long. It's kind of narrow in places. And at some points to cross the Sea of Galilee would be like a five-mile boat journey. Wasn't that long? Well, Jesus is traveling with his disciples across that sea to a secluded spot. He's, He's trying to find a private place. Now, John, in his gospel telling, doesn't tell us why Jesus is heading off with the disciples. But you'll learn why if you read the other gospel writers. You see... Just before Jesus withdraws with his disciples to this desolate location, the Savior, he just got word about the death of John the Baptist at the hands of the evil King Herod Antipas. Also, just before this time, Jesus had sent his disciples out on their first sort of missionary journey preaching tours. So the Savior and the disciples, they're looking for maybe a little rest, maybe a little time to debrief, They're looking for a chance to grieve the murder of John the Baptist. By the way, you can think about that from our modern day. What happens at your house whenever you decide you need a little bit of rest, a little bit of a quiet moment? Anybody got kids? If you decide that a nap is a good idea, the phone's going to buzz, 
The doorbell will ring. Finding peace and quiet can be tough. And in the ministry of Jesus here after a really rough recent season, the same thing's true. The Savior's not interrupted by an iPhone, but he is interrupted by the crowds. Even though they they get in a boat, (laughs) they go off in the middle of nowhere. You think that would work. The people saw what direction the boat was going. And then the crowd got moving around the outside of the lake so they could meet Jesus wherever he was headed. Because obviously, if he's going that way, we should be there too. Which reminds me of how our dog reacts whenever we start going anywhere. She's like, we're going to that room. I should go with you, obviously. Well, when Jesus and the disciples get off the boat, they're in the middle of nowhere. They're not super far, though, from Philip and Nathaniel's hometown of Bethesda. They're interrupted pretty quickly. Instead of a peaceful afternoon on a quiet hillside, Jesus will see a massive crowd headed his way. Thousands and thousands of people on foot. They're walking toward the Savior, toward the disciples. Here's the question. Why? Why is this crowd chasing Jesus down? John says it's because they saw the the signs, the miracles Jesus was performing on the sick. Now, John hasn't even recorded many of these for us. But we know from reading the other Gospels that Jesus regularly was healing the sick and giving sight to blind people and returning hearing to the deaf and casting demons out of the possessed. Jesus showed by the power that he possessed, by the miracles he did, that the kingdom of God had come. And this crowd was impressed with what they'd seen and they wanted to see more. Now, before we tell any more of the story... I want to stop here and make application of the first point. Seek Jesus for Jesus. The crowds chased Jesus around the lake, but why? Did they follow Jesus because they wanted to know Jesus? Did they follow Jesus because they believed this is the Savior sent by God, the Messiah? Did they follow him because he's God in human flesh? According to John, none of those are why the crowd followed Jesus. From what you can see here, from what you're going to see later in the chapter, this crowd was running after Jesus for what they might be able to get out of Jesus. They had heard about his power. They'd heard about his healings. They'd heard about his miracles. And they wanted in on the action. But friends... We don't seek Jesus for what we can get out of Jesus. If we seek Jesus rightly, we seek Jesus for Jesus. We seek Jesus because we want to know him. We want to be forgiven by him. We want to have joy in his glory. And when God says we must not have any gods before him, that means nothing should be a higher priority in our lives than the God who made us. You don't follow God because you hope to get wealth and health and social prosperity out of God. You follow God because He's God. He's the only God. He's God your Savior. He's God the Creator. He's God who owns us. That's why we follow God. 
Many a person thinks they can pretend interest in the things of God so that they can gain some extra benefit from God. But guys, don't you think God's a little bit smarter than us here? God knows you inside and out. God can see through your actions. God can see through your motives. God can see right down into your very heart. He knows if you want Him and His glory. He knows if you're trying to use Him as a tool to get something else instead of Him. The truth of the matter is, there's no greater gift God can give you than Himself. After all, God is infinite in His perfections. Jesus is God in the flesh. The best gift Jesus could give you is a relationship with Jesus. You can't get something better than that. So don't think you're going to follow Jesus to get something else from Jesus. Follow Jesus for Jesus, and Jesus will give you something of infinite worth. He'll give you himself. I want to also help us see something here that feels like a passing remark, but it's really important for what's coming up. John tells us that the Passover was at hand. And all through this middle section of John's gospel, all through it, we see the actions of Jesus. We see the discourses, the conversations of Jesus. They're always set up against the backdrop of important Jewish celebrations or Jewish festivals. So back in chapter 5, the Sabbath was the background. And there you saw Jesus claiming the right to do miraculous work, to command people to do things on the Sabbath. That was Jesus claiming rights that only God has. Thus, Jesus was showing us he's the God who gave the Sabbath regulation. He's the God who gave the Sabbath as a blessing as a sign for his people? Well, now the Passover is at hand. When you think about Passover, what should come to your mind? It, it should remind you of the book of Exodus, right? Passover makes you think about the dreadful miracle that the Lord performed when he led the people up out of the land of Egypt. It ought to stir in your memory the actions of God who kept his people, who who walked them through the Red Sea, who led them into the wilderness. Well, think about this. Passover's the background. What do you see? You see Jesus, God in the flesh, on a mountain, talking to his people. Does that sound familiar to you? You see... A massive throng of people there in the wilderness. It all brings to mind images of the Exodus. It brings to mind Mount Sinai. It brings to mind the people of Israel traveling through the wilderness. Could it be that John wants you to see that if you want to seek Jesus, when you seek Jesus, you are also seeking the very God who led his people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Might it be that the Passover reference is a reminder that the God who delivered his people is the very Jesus there on the mountainside with the crowd of Israelites? I sure think so. 
And we're going to see more of that imagery brought to light as we press on. So let's get to point number two. Number two, trust Jesus with everything. Trust Jesus with everything. Look at verses five through seven. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So again, lifting up his eyes gives us the picture of Jesus arriving at his intended destination with the disciples, looking up and seeing this massive crowd of people coming his way. There's not going to be any peaceful retreat for the Savior and the disciples today. He's going to be quickly surrounded by a needy, oftentimes demanding crowd. But Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is kind. And he's going to teach. He's going to heal. He's going to do what the Savior does. And John doesn't give us a lot of info about how that day went. He just focuses us on the question that the Savior asks here. This is great. Jesus turns to Philip. Philip lived in the nearby town of Bethsaida, not far away. And he says to Philip, how are we going to come up with food for this big a crowd? Apparently, these people that ran around the lake to catch up to Jesus, they went in such a hurry that they didn't bother to pack provisions for themselves. And Jesus, of course, knew that Philip knew where to find the nearest 7-Eleven. So that's how this works, right? Philip's going to know. But you know what Philip knows? Philip knows that his nearby town itself doesn't have enough food in it to feed a crowd the size of the one with the Savior on the mountainside. Now, Jesus knows the answer to his question, but asking it gives others around Jesus the opportunity to trust him. Jesus knows exactly what he's going to do. Philip has no way of knowing the Savior's plans. So Philip's in a situation, when he looks up, it is not solvable without a miracle taking place. I mean, guys, who could feed a multitude of people in a desert location who have no food? Only God can do that, guys. The God of the Exodus did it, didn't he? The God who sent manna down from heaven into the camp of Israel, he could feed that kind of crowd. So right here, Philip has the opportunity to believe in and to trust Jesus as God who led the people of Israel through the desert. (laughs) And Philip looks at the situation and he only can see from this worldly eyes. Philip sees the size of the crowd. He knows it would cost about eight months of your wages to start feeding that mob. Philip knows that the disciples don't have that kind of money in their collective purse. He knows even if it was that they had that money, that, that much bread is not available at Bethsaida with no notice. So Philip, he's at a loss. Can I ask, by the way, not to be, for you not to be too hard on Philip here? 
How many times in your life have you found yourself in a situation that appeared unsolvable? When you find yourself there, do you immediately and unfailingly trust the Lord to take care of it? Or let me just ask, how many of you from time to time doubt, worry, or complain? Any of you? You guys get it though, don't you? Do you you always believe all the time that God has everything under control? Or do you sometimes try to take matters into your own hands? You ever do that? See, Philip doesn't trust Jesus like we know he should. We can see it from our text here this morning. But would we have really been better that day? I'd love to tell you I would have trusted without a doubt. But I know my heart. Look at verses 8 and 9. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Andrew, he's the brother of Simon Peter, he interjects himself into the conversation. Andrew, as you might recall, he's one of the two disciples of John the Baptist who followed Jesus way back in chapter 1. Andrew's the guy that went and found his brother and brought him to meet Jesus. And here, Andrew has another person to bring to meet Jesus. Andrew introduces us all to a young man. The Greek language doesn't tell us exactly how old the boy is. Could be a child could be just an older household servant or slave. But who the boy is is not the heart of this story. This story is about Jesus. Well, the young man, he had food for himself. Pretty light provision, though. He has five small barley loaves and two fish. Now, barley bread, that's the bread that was most often eaten by the poor in Jesus' day. And when you hear loaf of bread, what do you think? Y'all think loaf of bread, right? How big is a loaf of bread? This big? This big? That? That? Okay. It wasn't that big. Think more like a biscuit. Think more like a little pancake. Don't think like the loaf of bread you get on the shelf at Walmart. Think Think about a little bitty, put a rough bread pancake. And the fish were very likely pickled fish that might remind you of sardines. I heard a preacher one time say, Andrew brings to Jesus a boy who's carrying a few sardine sandwiches. Now, what should we think? What do you think about Andrew here? Well, on the one hand, he points out to Jesus, a young man's got some food, that's good. But Andrew's question, but what are they for so many, shows you Andrew doesn't have any idea what's about to happen. He's not trusting Jesus to solve the problem. What about the young man? We don't know anything about him. You could write a whole sermon about how sweet this boy was to volunteer his own lunch. But we have no idea that he volunteered this. That doesn't say that. They just said Andrew brought him up. (laughs) Poor guy. Come here, kid. You got food. I don't know. Maybe the kid came forward. Maybe Andrew found him. I don't know. We don't have a clue about that stuff. But the focus of this story is not the crowd. And it's not the disciples. And it's not the boy. 
The focus of the story here is Jesus. We're supposed to learn about Jesus. We're supposed to see and believe in Jesus. That's John's focus. It's got to be ours. So before we go forward, I want you to learn from the doubt of the disciples. Philip and Andrew struggled to believe that Jesus could solve the food problem. And in that failure to believe, Philip and Andrew were wrong. And we should learn that the right thing to do in this situation is to believe. When Jesus asked Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Philip's response should have been, Lord, you know. Philip should have admitted, with man, this is impossible. But Jesus, he's not just a man. Jesus is the God-man. Jesus has turned water to wine. Jesus has healed the sick. Jesus can fix any problem Jesus faces. So here we go. As we find ourselves facing impossible circumstances, may we learn to trust Jesus. May we willingly hand the Savior everything we've got. Because we know that the Savior can do things that you and I could never imagine being done. Trust Jesus with everything. Trust Jesus knowing he is good. Trust Jesus knowing that he's mighty. Trust Jesus with everything you've got. Hold nothing back as if there's something in your world that's off limits for your God. It might be you're hearing my voice here or online and you've never entrusted your very soul to Jesus. Well, trust him. Believe in Jesus. Know that you need the forgiveness of God and know that Jesus is your only hope to get that forgiveness. Entrust your life, your very soul, your eternity to Jesus because everyone who comes to Jesus in faith turning from sin will find Jesus's forgiveness. And you who know Jesus, the point's the same. Trust him with everything. Trust. Don't fear. Trust. Don't doubt. Trust that his ways are perfect. Trust that his love is genuine. Trust that when your life is over, Jesus will have worked all things together for good and glory. Trust Jesus with all that you have as a believer. Trust him with your children. You guys hear that? Trust Jesus with your children. He knows how to take care of them better than you do. Trust him with your health. He knows how your body works better than you do. Trust him. Trust him with the government. Because I can't figure it out. Trust him with the future. Trust him with the climate. Trust him with social conflict. Trust Jesus with everything. You can't let circumstances around you prevent you from believing in the power of your Lord. We might have a million situations where we can't see how God's going to work them out. But we can know this. He knows. We can remember that he is sovereign. We can remember that he's good. And we can trust Jesus with everything. 
Let's go on. Third point. You guys still with me? Even you in the back? All right. Thank you. Verses 10 to 13. By the way, our third point, believe in Jesus. That's a good point. Like for everything you ever study in John, believe in Jesus probably should show up as a point in the sermon. 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, there was, many, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves Eat, uh, left by those who were left by those who had eaten. So, here's something interesting as a side note. This is one of the few, very few miracles you can find recorded in all four Gospels. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here Jesus, he orders the people to sit down. Just picture this scene. You're on a, on a hillside, a, a, a grassy, green, grassy hillside and people are just sitting down on the nice cushy grass, kind of reclining, watching, waiting to see what Jesus is going to do. And now John tells us how big the crowd is. 5,000 men. And by the way, y'all, even in our day, 5,000 men don't tend to travel on their own. We are pretty incompetent. We need women with us, and we'd like to take our kids. The most conservative estimate of the size of this crowd you can make would be that there were 15,000 people. It's not at all out of the question to find 20,000, 25,000, 30,000 could have been there. Jesus prays. He thanks the Father for provision. And he begins breaking up the food and giving it to the disciples so that they can pass it out to the crowd. And here's the funny thing. The Bible never tells us exactly when or how the miracle occurred. Like, did Jesus just keep breaking and 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 breaking food? Or did the baskets just kind of keep refilling themselves as they went down the rows? You never see the miracle take place, but like the water that Jesus turned to wine in John chapter 2, the next time you look, something supernatural has occurred. Jesus, with one tiny lunch, has provided food for a gigantic crowd. And the disciples, after the crowd finished, they're fully satisfied. Can you fathom this? They picked up the leftovers and there were 12 baskets full of food left. Y'all, how many baskets full of food did they start with? They didn't even have a basket full of food to start with. Now there's enough left for every one of the 12 disciples to pick up a full basket. That's Jesus showing us power. So what happened, guys, is Jesus just did the unimaginable, right? He just provided miraculous food in a desert place for a huge crowd of people. Just like God in the Exodus, the Savior gave food to a people in the desert who had no possible way to feed or care for themselves. 
the 12 baskets ought to bring to your mind the 12 disciples or the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus has shown us he is God. And by the way, he doesn't lose any of the fragments in those baskets, which means Jesus is sovereign over everything, folks. And think about what this tells you about God. Y'all, I want you to hear this because we reform folks don't get this enough. God is kind. You know, those people, they could have survived one day without dinner, right? I mean, y'all can survive one day without dinner, can't you? Some of you. But Jesus was not willing to let this crowd go through even that little hardship. He did not invite them. They chased him around the lake. Not only, though, did Jesus provide food, he provided not not a little, not enough. Jesus provided more than enough. Jesus is a giving God. He's not stingy. He's not begrudging. Honestly, guys, I want even to imagine that Jesus made the fish taste better than sardines. But that's me imagining in the story. Listen to me. When you fear, do you see in your mind's eye the face of this kind of kind, compassionate, giving Savior? When you failed and you need forgiveness, do you let yourself remember the giving way of our God? When you're afraid for the future, do you remember the power of a Savior who fed 25,000 people with one lunchbox? Guys, let this make you love Jesus. Let it help you believe in Jesus. But when I call you to believe in Jesus, I've got to warn you, don't miss the point. Don't look to Jesus for primarily this worldly provision. I mean, he can provide for your every earthly need, but it's far more important that you have Jesus meet your spiritual need. And that takes us to our last point today, point number four. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Look at verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So now we see how the crowd reacts to what Jesus has done. And I want to let you in on the ending. The crowd missed the point. Yes, they believe in the miraculous power of Jesus, but they don't believe in Jesus in a life-changing way. Remember, the setting of the story, you've got the Jewish Passover as the backdrop. But during that time, during Passover season, the Jews remembered how God led them out from under an oppressive government in Egypt. Right? God moved them through the desert, through the Red Sea, God fed them. He provided for their needs. He crushed the Egyptian army. He spoke to them from a mountaintop. He showed them his ways. He established with them his covenant. To the Jews, this season would stir up for them 
Man, a king that would come, a promise from God. We want God to get us out from under Rome. We want political victory right now. And when the crowd sees the size of the miracle Jesus just did in feeding all of them, you know what? They get excited and they miss the point. They start thinking about Passover and they start thinking about the Exodus and they start thinking about a new kingdom and they want God to give them a king who will lead them to overthrow Rome. They want him to empower the physical nation of Israel. They want him to establish a physical world conquering kingdom in Israel right here, right now. Some of the people say, ooh, he's the prophet who's going to come into the world, which is a reference to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.15, right? The Lord yourself will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You know, some of the people saw Jesus as the promised Messiah. They did see that, but they didn't know what the Messiah was. They're like, hey, he's going to be a military king. We're going to conquer the world. We're going to beat up the Romans. There's 20,000 of us here. There's 5,000 men here. We're the starter army. Who? We got an army with a limitless food supply and a miraculous healer. We ain't going to get beat. They want Jesus to be their king. And they think to themselves, you know what, even if he doesn't want to be king, let's go grab him and force him to be king whether he wants to be or not. By the way, think that one through for a second, please. Is that a good idea? And here I think you can see how they missed the point, though, can't you? Jesus didn't come to be that kind of king. Jesus came to provide spiritual life and salvation for the true Israel of God, not physical Israel, but those chosen by God to be the spiritual, forgiven, eternal life-given children of God. Jesus did not come to earth to be a physical rescuer for the physical offspring of Abraham. He came to bring eternal life and the forgiveness of God to all people who would trust God from all nations all over the world. There's no such thing in this kingdom as the people of God who are of this people group or of that people group. We become a brand new people group, the one people of God. So Jesus, for Jesus' part, he sends the disciples away down back to the boat. He probably, by the way, says, meet me around at Bethesda. That's probably what they're thinking they're going to do, but I don't know. We don't get that. And then Jesus slips off on his own. He's so good at this. Away from the crowd. All of a sudden, the crowd's looking around. They can't find Jesus. He's... He's gone. They're not going to get the this worldly king that they want. In this instance, the crowd wanted to lead Jesus. They didn't want to follow Jesus. They wanted to tell him what to do. They wanted to tell him what he was going to be instead of letting him show them why he came. The crowd tried to take the lead, not submit to the word and the ways of God. And in doing it, they missed the point and they missed Jesus. Friends, today, don't miss Jesus. He's going to return to this earth one day. 
And when he returns to this earth, he is going to rule forever. He rules right now on the throne of heaven. And he's going to rule when he returns physically over the globe forever. But before that happens, here's what I want you to hear me. Before the day Jesus returns, before the day you die, you need to find life in Jesus' name. You need spiritual life in Jesus' name. You need the forgiveness of God. And again, if you've never yet come to Jesus, I urge you, come to Jesus for life. Now, for those of us who know Jesus, let's not miss him. Let's seek after him because of who he is. Let's trust him with everything we've got. Let's believe that he's the God who came to earth to bring forgiveness and life. Let's know that he can conquer any difficulty. Let's know that he's loving and kind and compassionate and merciful. And let's follow Jesus as our king now, even as we await his glorious return to reign as king forever. Pray with me, friends. Lord God, you're good. You are so good. And we are grateful for your love and mercy and your kindness. We would ask you that those who hear this message would respond in faith and repentance. We would ask that Christians who hear this message would respond by trusting Jesus more than they ever have, by being comforted, by letting go of control of every little issue in life because we know you've got things figured out that we've never even begun to understand. Help us, God, to be the faithful people of God because of a glorious, sweet Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.